everyone, and welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a podcast for SaaS founders and product people. Today, our amazing guest is Todd Olson, co-founder and CEO of Pendo, and we're going to talk about product-led growth today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userless.com. Hey, Todd. Hey, Gene. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. We're rather thrilled to explore your, <laughs> your thinking on that because, man, the scale your company operates at, it's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Thank you. For those who don't know what Pendo is and what it does, give us a short background story about, well, Pendo and a bit of yourself, like who you are by trade. Yeah, no, sounds good. So Pendo, you know, we're a SaaS company. We're almost nine years old now. And what we do is we help, well, our mission is to elevate experiences with software. And we do this for customer-facing software, so the software you use. But we also now do it for the software you buy. So, so think of if you purchase something off the shelf and you're trying to make sure that you understand how to use it, drive adoption of it, that's what we do. Uh, the main um, how we do that is, one, through analytics. So we help measure usage within software applications. So think of us as a product analytics platform. And we combine that with the ability to uh, message users in product. So think of it as everything from onboarding to new feature announcements to self-service, all, all in product. My background, I historically uh, started you know, developing software actually very early in my life. So actually at age 14, started my first company right out of college. Pendo is my third venture-funded startup. Most of my career has been in a, a senior technical and or product management-oriented role. So that, that is kind of my background. All primarily... B2B software, so I, I don't have any consumer software experience, but, but yeah, that's me in a nutshell. To impress our listeners, I know you can speak of some numbers publicly, so how large is the company at the moment and what's the ARR uh, for? for yeah, so we're, uh, <laughs> we announced that we crossed 100 million in ARR about a year ago, July of 2021, so and we're growing around 50-ish percent. So you can kind of get a sense of our size, scale, and speed. We're about 950 employees. So yeah, yeah. And we've done this in you know, a little less than nine years. So you can kind of get a sense. Well, congratulations on that. What does product-led growth mean for you? And do you think that being product-led basically is the reason for your success or is it not? What does product-led growth mean to me? So I think product-led companies are one where they put the product central to the overall customer experience. You know, I think product-led companies start with how can the product create a better, better user experience? You think of like Tesla. We don't think of Tesla based on like the humans we interact with when we're trying to buy one. We think about like the app and the product and it grows in a, in a viral fashion. So it's a really great example of, I think, what it means to be a product-led organization. And the second question was, is it instrumental in Pendo's success? Yes and no is actually the honest answer. We ourselves, I, I think a lot of companies buy us to become more product-led. So in that sense, it is very much part of our success. I think we power so many companies, product-led growth teams. We drive onboarding for a lot of customers. I think it's absolutely, we. so I think another way of characterizing is we 
That's a wave that we have written as a business. We ourselves are still pretty early in our own product-led journey. You know, I think we've always been sort of product-led, but we've had a sales team since 2015. And we are very effective at selling. And we have, you know, (laughs) our sales organizations like... Uh, you know, 400 people. <laughs> so it's not small by any means. So I, I think we're like a pretty good blend. And I, I will say that our growth team is has grown a lot uh, in the last year. We, we actually in 2020, like kind of right around the start of the pandemic, we decided as a team to pivot and invest a lot more heavily in product-led growth. And we're starting to see that more of the fruits of that labor right now, actually. You'll actually answer a little bit one of my next questions, which is what is the other option of not being a product-led team? Is it a sales-led model? The way I characterize it is human-led. So it's uh-huh. like, you know, the, the inverse of product-led is human-led. And, you know, sales is just, of course, one of those departments, you know. But but yeah, I mean, look, when a product isn't great or doesn't deliver a great experience, what do we do? We throw humans at it. You know, we'll call <laughs> them, we'll manually do it. I mean, that's essentially what happens, you know, and and... And that's okay. And a lot of small companies do it when you're very early stage, you're trying to figure out what works. I mean, we do unscalable things. One of the unscalable thing we do is we throw humans at problems because we're trying to learn very, very quickly. We know if a human's on the phone, they're listening, they may be able to like learn faster. So we see that, especially in the B2B world. And look, we have the rise of these customer success teams. What's a customer success team? It's It's a set of humans whose job is to make sure people adopt the product. One could ask, why isn't the product itself to do that? And that's a whole probably, you can talk about that later. I mean, the product probably should, but we've invented these roles to make sure that people actually use the thing that they've purchased, right? So they think of a lot of these customer success teams are, are really the opposite of PLG. They're more human driven than it is product driven. There's a hot term, uh, not hot term, but self-serve. So self-served, is it a synonym for product-led? I think self-serve is part of being product-led, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you can serve yourself rather than talking to a human, yeah, it's absolutely a product-led experience. And does product-led mean that you have to have sort of a wide funnel on top with a super generous free trials or freemium or something that doesn't require a card? Do you think it's a mandatory thing or you can still be product-led with a credit card up front? I absolutely think there's a wide spectrum of what it means to be product-led. There is no one-size-fits-all. It's not like you have to have a wide funnel at the top. You can be very, very narrow. There are great digital experiences that aren't mass. They're kind of more bespoke and more curated. So I think I think it doesn't really matter. So like, you know, we, we see plenty of great digital experiences or product experiences that are not just a credit card convert over a website. So there's, there's plenty of other ways to think about it. There three pillars that you mention when you talk about product-led growth, becoming data-driven, focusing on the customer and establishing the processes for experiments and such. Correct. Could you elaborate on those? Like what, what should follow first? What should be first? What, what's next? And uh, like, what's the roadmap to becoming a product-led organization? First and foremost, I think you got to start with data. If you don't have a culture of being data-driven, if you don't have a culture of learning, incorporating data into your processes, like you're not going to really be successful at PLG because the best teams are ones that are iterating fast, listening, measuring, and tweaking constantly. You know, I would probably bucket experimentation probably in the data-driven piece, but, you know, I think great teams here, like one, they have a baseline. They have a baseline of 
how are things today? And then you start adding, making changes, adjusting, and you start saying, are these things improving it? Are they not improving it? How well are they improving it? And, and look, I think the other thing to think about within that realm is you want to make sure you have a culture where failure is accepted. Like if, you know, I meet now regularly with our PLG team, they talk about these are like the five or 10 experiments we ran. You know, three of them worked, you know, these didn't work. We're adjusting this. Like if you don't have a team that's trying things that aren't working, you're not trying enough. And so I, I really, we really coach the teams to think bigger, be creative, try a bunch of different things. Some things won't work. That's completely okay. But, that, but eventually when you're creative enough, you'll find things that do. So that's kind of the analytics and data. Like that's like the first area and it's obsessing over all aspects of the experience. You know, like what's time to first use of certain features, you know, how many features are our best customer users? What are the key features that are driving stickiness that are pulling people back? Like what's two week retention on and how do we drive two week retention? Like these are the kinds of metrics that these teams focus on and obsess over and kind of drive the results that we're looking for. What's the minimum viable behavior tracking or data tracking setup for a product business? Minimum viable, like, look, I, I think you need to have a solution in place that's tracking like the key aspects of the product journey and workflow. So I think that that's kind of minimum for, for, for mine. You, you, I mean, th- is that what you're asking? There are so many options out there. One can get overwhelmed and like try to get it perfect when it's probably impossible. But we've got things like just tracking the key metrics for the product or trying to record the whole experiences like hot jar or full story or trying to record everything like heap does what's the recommended like balance between those i think you need enough data to make sure you're looking at a more complete picture because if you're looking at an incomplete picture you run the risk of making poor decisions so look i i tend to advocate for collecting a, like a slightly more expansive set of data there's a great book written many many years ago by professor robert austin he talks about metrics dysfunction and within that book there's a conversation around completeness like, again, incomplete measures lead to dysfunction. You know, like the classic example he uses in the book is if you, you know, if you have a recruiting team and you're only measuring the number of calls or the number of interviews, you're not measuring like the success of the actual hired employees. Like, what's the ultimate measure? Like, ultimate measure is the success of the employees. Like, you, you run the risk of making poor decisions, right? So I think similar goes in product. You know, if you're, you obviously want to be measuring the leading and lagging indicators, the lagging indicators, things like conversions. And then ultimately, not just, hey, did they convert once, but is this a customer we have for a long time? Like what's kind of the, I mean, ultimately people use things like LTV and CAC, but like, did we renew this customer? Did we keep them for a long period of time? And then, um, so those are the great lagging indicators. And we also look backwards, the leading indicators, like what does it take to get people to do this? Because if we only look at lagging indicators, it will take way too long for us to pivot and make decisions. So you have to kind of try to help find connections between these leading indicators and lag indicators to kind of drive more results. So like we look at like ourselves, our, our, our PLJ team, I already mentioned this metric. We look at two-week retention. So when someone comes into our product, like what percentage come in a second week? That's a really good proxy for stickiness. And that's one of the metrics we obsess over to make sure we're doing the right things in that team. Is Pendo sort of a set and forget type of tool because you develop a certain experience, a morning experience, let's say, and then they keep it the same for another year or two and then they come back? Or are you designed in the way to continually drive people back to your app to check analytics and do other things? 
I mean, look, you can certainly set and forget any solution, right? <laughs> like, would I advocate setting and forgetting? Like, no. Like, I think it's the kind of product, like any product, where I, we want to constantly adjust and tweak based on what we're seeing. So, and we, even with our own product, have a concept of experiments. So we could have two onboarding flows, understand which one's actually driving better results. So, so I think, now do, do customers set and forget? Does it deliver value? Yeah. Like, we have customers that will get a certain experience designed and set up and launched and we'll leave it running for a period of time and like we can measure how many end users are interacting with that and like yes it's a part of the experience i I think it's a we we would recommend as a best practice you to constantly iterate and tweak but not every customer does that so one of the reasons why i'm asking this is that the actual you know frequency of logging into the app or something is not necessarily tied to the value as as much as we hope it would be you know and also the adoption is not from zero to one. It's it's a much more interesting scale from just using it enough to using it really well. And also the size of the customer, it's, it's, it's not just a binary thing. <laughs> it's not a binary thing. So yeah, look, you're picking at an interesting question. And I think a lot of products have, have this challenge. But, I, but I'd ask you this. If you have a product where someone literally never logs in, they just set it up and they left and they were logs in. And that product's coming up for renewal and they get this bill and they're saying, huh, I got this thing. I should renew it. I never really log into it. It's going to create risk for you. you know. So the reality is we're constantly thinking of features to get people back in. Whether it was necessary or not, it's kind of like this thing if it's out of sight, out of mind. And I think the best products, the ones that are stickiest, the ones that um, have the best retention are ones where people are actively in it and getting value out of it because, you know, they, they associate that time spent in app with some sort of like value that, that they're receiving from it. So that's kind of how I think about it now to help customers understand like the full impact of a Pendo, even without logging in, we can measure things like end users interacting with our product and, and say, hey, you know, like you're in the email world, so you could have something kind of email sent or emails interacted with. Similar for us for in-app messages. This many end users did this. So that, yes, you, you don't have to log into our app to get value, but we spend a lot of time thinking about features that get people back in the product. So, and actually our data shows that that investment pays off. Well, the more people interact with it, the more invested they feel and the more things exactly. they use. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely working like that. Let's talk about the second pillar, making customer the center of everything. And what is the other option of not doing that? Like, would that be completely neglecting the customer? Who would never no, say no, that? No. Oh, so, so when I, I'll shift that just a little bit, the word. So instead of saying, putting the customer to the center, I think, yeah, the customer needs to be centered in everything you do. Uh, it's putting the product to the center of the customer experience is kind of the, like the nuance here. And if I think about that, there's plenty of examples I, I like to give, but product-led organizations don't think the product is just, oh, we have this product. It's how can we leverage this product to do more things? Like a, a case in point, one of the examples I'd love to give is I was using this software once and um, it was like beautifully designed. I really liked it. And I looked at, I, I am a little bit technical as I shared. So I looked at the um, browser console, you know, through, through Chrome and a message popped up and it said, hey, if you're looking at this, you're probably a good candidate to apply for a job at our organization Please email us at jobs at blah, blah, blah.com. And I thought that was pretty novel. That that's um, if you think about it, that's a recruiting team working with a product team to make sure that we're trying to populate top of funnel. So sourcing new applicants, leveraging the product itself. 
So that's an, an interesting example, maybe not one that people think about as product-led, but it's really a product-led recruiting effort. It's, yes, they could be calling people, they could be trying to get resumes physically, but if people are just coming inbound by looking at your product because they like your product, look, if someone's using a product, they're a pretty good candidate to work there. And I think that's a, a really interesting example of how cross-functional being product-led can be. We've got customers, another example, uh, on the finance or billing side that, let's say someone doesn't pay their bill. And sure, you can haul them, you can send them a bunch of emails, but imagine like a nice message pops up when they log in and say, hey, you know, sad face, you're 60 days overdue. We would really, really like to collect this so we can keep this product on. That's the finance team and accounts receivable team talking with the product team to find ways to communicate in app and drive collections, which is another example of like being product led, but in a slightly different fashion. So like, look, everyone knows about product-led growth, but these other examples are, are, are less common that I see a lot of companies doing that are just great examples of like shifting the efforts from human-driven activities to more product-driven activities. Do you have any advice on establishing better communication between, let's say, marketing and sales and product that could help that happen? Because marketing people around the world are not really enabled to talk to product team much in order to make their wishes come true. That is a challenge. It is a challenge. It is a challenge. A ridiculous yeah. truth is that a lot of email providers we track as competitors use their own competitors for email marketing. Isn't that weird? Because, you know, marketing person comes in, what they have is, you know, just what they have can do themselves, not the whole team surrounding them with care and love unfortunately. <laughs> that is odd. That is odd. I mean, look, I, I think this ties a little bit into the third pillar, which is around how we evolve our organization, become more product-led. It starts really with having a more cross-functional lens around your product. You know, the reality is if you think about products, it's only a product management thing, you're going to be far too siloed to really take full advantage of being product-led. You have to break down those barriers and involve these various functions. So for example, if you're doing product-led growth and you're not involving sales and marketing, you're likely, frankly, not going to be successful because yeah, our product-led growth team works very, very closely with the marketing team, specifically within the emailing world to make sure that as people are coming in or coordinating when we're emailing folks um, that are part of free trials or part of a freemium experience because they want to make sure it, if we're sending out emails to these individuals, it feels like a coordinated effort. It doesn't feel like, frankly, two different departments, you know, bothering the same user about completely disparate things. So I think there's a lot of coordination there. You got to coordinate with sales. Here's a you know, question to PLG where what if someone in a freemium experience or free trial has a question? Who responds? The product team isn't going to have humans to respond. But so this is where product experience sometimes involve humans and what humans are responding. Well, honestly, in most organizations, it's a salesperson and some organizations, it's a support person. But regardless, our head of PLG, our growth leader, she's working incredibly cross-functionally to make sure every aspect of the experience is thought through. So there aren't any dead ends. Because if someone says they want to talk to a human and there's a dead end, that's a bad experience. That's a really bad experience. And look, we hope that they don't have to talk to a human. We hope it's completely self-serve and they're getting all the answers they want. But in the case where they want, we got to make sure sales is ready and there aren't. They have all the data. Like, oh, you know, because a great experience is when you do talk to that human, that human knows everything about you and where you are and what's going on. You don't want to like 
rehash and tell them like all your data like that's a horrible experience that's like one of the tedious like who likes that we all like personalized human experiences so insofar as the system can inform the humans on how to have a better experience with, with that user i think i think it's it's going to lead to better sentiment i'm glad you touched on the sales team and how they interact regarding the product Correct me if I'm wrong. I heard that you have 400 salespeople in your. We have 400 individuals in our sales organization. That's yeah, like quota carrying. It's probably 150 ish, roughly. But then you have like sales engineering and value consulting and six, eight, all that. So, so that's like that's like a rough approximation. Yeah. And you have a highly technical product that involves a lot of complexities, a lot of interesting aspects, and what people ask on the demos is very often highly technical stuff. How do you solve this? <laughs> well, look, we've evolved a lot over the years. And, you know, I, I think, yes, our product can be pretty technical. And I'd say our sales reps, on average, have to know some pretty technical terms and jargon and lingo in order to communicate with product managers. And then ultimately, engineers are going to inject, you know, some piece of JavaScript into their product. So they have to know what JavaScript is. And they have to know what it means to inject it. And they have to know understand what metadata is. And they have to understand, like, basic security things around privacy and cookies and things like that. So, yeah, our best reps understand all these things. And so we have to enable them and educate them. And that's why there's a ramp time. When you hire a rep right off the street, there's a ramp time. They have to listen, shadow, get enabled to, to really be effective. We also have sales engineers, which can go even deeper, or even customize the solution. So we have a good ratio of sales engineers. But I mean, look, over time, the good news is over time that things like Pendo have become more, let's just say, industry standard. So more of our customers come in more educated. So we don't have to educate them quite as much technically. And, and I think there's a shift in our focus of our sales reps from just a, hey, what are the features and functions and how does this thing work to what's the ROI of a Pendo? And how do you go back to a leadership team and say, we're going to justify this spend? I mean, because the other fact about our product, if you're familiar, like we're not cheap. Like we're actually a premium product. I mean, I'd say we're often told when we talk to customers that we're among the most expensive things they spend money on. Certainly a startup. I know that these customers are getting tons of value or we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't be successful <laughs> asking for it. But it means our sales team needs to be armed with data and facts so that those team members can go back and justify that spend. And, and that, so that's a big part of the sales process. Well, that's been an evolution. When we're tiny, it was all feature functions. Now we're, you know, selling use cases and value and, you know, ROI. And, and so that, that's been a kind of an evolution in the company's history. At what time does the handover happen between your sales team and uh, the customer success team? Depends on the size and scale of the, the customer. For like a very large customer, let's say an enterprise customer, uh, we're bringing in customer success before we close the deal to educate the enterprise customer on what the experience is going to look like post-sale. So it's like, a, hey, customer, we want you to just meet Mary from our customer success team. She's going to like walk you through the process to onboard you, get you up and running. Um, because most large enterprises that are you know spending you know significant amounts on like a solution like Pendo, they want to make sure that it doesn't become some piece of shelfware. They want to make sure that they're getting support. So that, that, that's often a key part of the sales cycle. And when, when we are doing a more sales-oriented approach, our experience is the more humans they interact with from the company, the more likely they are to close. Now, in a more transactional sale, small sale, usually it's post-sale. They'll get a connection. I mean, we do have a scale team, and it is 
a pretty heavy self-service uh, for smaller customers. And because I think a lot of smaller customers want a more self-service experience. They don't want to talk to talk to a human. They don't want to do quarterly meetings with some human appendo. They just want things to work. So like in that case, we don't force ourselves upon them. We make ourselves available for those customers if they so choose and or desire. But we want to make sure we have a beautiful, amazing self-service experience. We want to have an amazing community to support them. But look, if you're a startup, like our startup users are using Pendo like at you know weekends or at you know eight o'clock in the evening local time. You know they're like they're in the day they're like doing their day job and like Pendo's like sometimes like something that they're doing in their evening. So like it just it just depends. So the answer to the question. Tell us about that culture of experimentation and how exactly like what processes you have around that and the principles. We typically have we have goals. We have numbers that we want to we want to affect. Like I mentioned, second week retention a few times. I've also other goals are around like conversion, like converting from free to paid. There's also goals around things like like sign up goals for the person that someone like. So so I think you are personally familiar with like kind of how we're installed, and you need to put a JavaScript snippet in your application. So we measure the percentage of people that sign up put the snippet in. That's a very key conversion metric for us because if you don't get snippet in, honestly, the rest is kind of meaningless. So like those three things are three key outcomes for us and part of our funnel. Sign up to snippet, snippet to second week usage, and then conversion. So let's use those three outcomes. We run lots of experience across all of them. So we're running experiments and essentially two-week sprints and those experiments can be, you know, everything. Yeah, you know, we, we we could be leveraging emails for it. We could be doing in product messaging for it. We could be doing other things for it. Like we're using, we're running constant experiments to see if what we could do to like touch every single one of those measures, and and we're reporting out on it. So on a biweekly basis, our growth teams meeting, they have a document readout that has all these metrics, has all the experiments running. They're having like the effect. They have a we do kind of green, yellow, red for all of these metrics to see what we're having a positive effect on. And the team's talking about, hey, if this is red, you know, what are we doing to make it green? And that's the culture around it. I think for a team like this, having biweekly meetings, and I say biweekly meetings, it's it's with the growth team, plus every executive of the company is pretty much invited. And we kind of run it like a traditional like Amazon style meeting where you come in, you spend the first five minutes reading this doc in the meeting, everyone's commenting. And then we just blow through the comments one by one and get people like aligned on what we're doing. We, there's a lot of like, there's sometimes a special report on like a cool experiment they run that ran that works, but that's kind of how we think about it. Just curious if you're okay to share that. What's, what's the sign up to snippet conversion rating? <laughs> you know, I had to look it up, to be honest, because I, I, it's I like roughly, I, I can take a second. I can look at the last growth update, 55%. Well, that's, that's really good. Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. Our goal is to get to 70, just to give you a sense. So we are currently at 55%. We're trying to get to 70. So, Which gives uh, you a good idea that not every trial is qualified to, or is intending to continue working in your app because installing a snippet is a pretty simple action yeah. to think about it. So Yeah, it, it is simple. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. This is actually, a, I think it's a funny story. It's, I guess it's more uh, eternal, but I, I remember the days when we were uh, 20 person startup when like installing the snippet was like so stressful. It's like, ah, like we're, we're like so hard to get people to install the snippet. And like, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of work was done and we have reinvented the snippet install process 
at least three times in the company's history. Like we've redesigned that page, redone every aspect of that process multiple times. And our growth team is doing it even now. And look, 50% is actually quite good. And we want to get to 70. So, so that gives you a sense of what's going on. Now we have this new product that installs via browser extension. It's an extension to Chrome, Edge, et cetera, et cetera. And now you got the people in the company like stressing out about extension installs, telling me how hard is it? And, and I was sharing with the team, look, folks, I know this seems really, really hard. It's hard because it's brand new to us. And like, we're still getting at bats and we're still figuring out how to like eliminate objections and make things a little bit easier. But I remember when the, when the snippet was really painful and <laughs> that it was super stressful and that we had a lot of conversations with it and we've iterated through the years and like, we've gotten actually pretty effective at it. And I'm sure if we look out, I don't think it's going to take six or seven years. I think it's going to probably take like one or two years. But when we look at one or two years, the extension will seem like easy to us. <laughs> it just doesn't seem easy now because we don't have experience doing it. And it's, I think part of my job and my role being here since the beginning is to help share that context so that people just don't freak out when they encounter something new. Because, you know, and this is a benefit of experience in general. I think many of the things that seem new to many people are just the same things we dealt with years ago, just in like different packages, <laughs> different forms. Like, you know, that's the benefit of being an old person, I guess, in the B2B SaaS industry. You know, I mean, I've seen this before in many instances. Maybe it was like different kind of software, maybe it was a different user base, whatever. But I've seen some of the similar things and it, it just, you know, makes me like less freaked out when I see it again, because I haven't seen it. It's not the first time I've seen it. It's just like, oh yeah, I remember this. This is a play for this, or this is how we handle this. So that's kind of, I think it's a big part of any leader's role is to kind of calm people down and remind people like, hey, this will be okay. It can be too old because the whole B2B SaaS story is like 15 to 20 years old max. So. I'm probably older than I look, so uh, <laughs> so don't worry. I got, <laughs> I definitely been in, been in the, I feel like it at times, you know, certainly now. Given that you've run multiple experiments and sure, you have a privilege of an amazingly large uh, sample size probably for those, but still marketing attribution is not a problem that has been resolved like 100%. So there is uh, maybe some seasonality in general, maybe that there is some uh, marketing campaign running that is driving a different kind of leads that would be different at adoption versus something that happened two weeks ago. Maybe you're running a conference next week. You're going to have a bunch of unqualified people stumbling across Pendo. How do you jumble that across the experiments you're running? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, from a, a marketing attribution and kind of high-level conversion, honestly, generally, we mostly manage the high-level conversion metrics and we don't see a lot of deviation from it. However, when we do see a deviation from it, that's when you see us do that extra pullback of the lens. Like, was it a specific campaign? Was it something else? So a great example is we decided as a marketing team to run an experiment with a different persona. You know, we typically sell to product management personas and we we shifted to product marketing and customer success as a key marketing campaign. And it didn't work. Like the short answer is if you look at the dollars spent versus the conversion and contrast it to what we would typically get in terms of yield, it was worse. And we're not going to do that again, but like you got to like try things out and, and run some experiments and, and see what works. The other thing we are looking at too is product led 
marketing versus non-product-led marketing. So non-product marketing, you know, is like traditional, what we call an inbound demo request or IDR. So someone comes to the, the website and says, I want a demo. And that is a huge source of demand for Pendo. And we have, honestly, years of conversion rate data on a number of people that hit that button. This is like, that's a good lead. Someone says, I want a demo. That means they're interested, they does some research, they're coming in. That's a very, very, very good lead. And it actually doesn't much matter whether it's coming from a paid source or an organic source. If someone says they want a demo, like we have actually a pretty darn high conversion rate of those. Like it's shockingly high. But now we have situations where someone's using a free version of our product and someone's saying from within the free, hey, I want to buy. That's a PQL, not an MQL. Product or not qualified lead, yeah, yes, for our listeners. <laughs> those conversion rates are completely different. And then there, it could be a PQL because we have a feature turned off in a free product. It could be because we give away certain numbers of monthly active users. Think of it as like amount of scale, and they like crossed over that scale. It could be for they just want better support. So like understanding the source there. It's all new data for us. So we're, we're, we're constantly getting new. We're constantly tweaking. We're constantly adjusting thresholds. And that's one of the cool things about the experiments we're running in our PLG team is they're putting more features in, adjusting things, adjusting some of the features that, that we have in the products constantly to understand like what optimizes these rates. And because like you, you want to have a balance here. Like you want at the end of the day to make sure people get value out of free product. We don't want it to be something people don't get value out of. I'll talk more about that probably later. But it's, it, I think it's really, really critical that like they're constantly adjusting to find this balance. What is the ratio of uh, free to paid accounts? Not the conversion rate, but just the general ratio for your business. General ratio of free to paid? Like, I don't know the exact one like in front of me, but it's roughly one-to-one. We have probably mm-hmm. more free accounts than paid accounts right now. Mm-hmm. But some businesses run on like one to two to five percent being paid versus the rest of them free. I know. That, like... I know. Yeah, we are not that business yet. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I'd like to get to probably two, three, four to one free to paid over time. Mm-hmm. I think we will at some point in our company's history. No, we're. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. In 2020, we had zero. We now have as many free as we have paid, if not a little bit more, I think you'll see us, that number is probably going to continue growing. It was 2020 and you decided to do the free plan. What was the thinking behind that? Because it's a huge step, especially for such premium-ish product as you are. Yeah, look, I think when the pandemic hit and we started talking about what do we think is going to happen and how can we as a company respond? We assumed when the pandemic hit that the pandemic was going to have a more outsized impact on small, medium-sized businesses. So we were expecting the SMB part of our business to have more challenges. And we started seeing pretty, pretty fast in March. And, and just for other contexts, our business is actually pretty evenly divided between SMB mid-market and enterprise. Like it's about a third each. So it's a meaningful amount of revenue for us. Like, you know, just, you know, just a year ago, we we're hundred million. So a third of hundred million is roughly $33 million. $33 million is a lot of money, right? Like it's healthy SaaS businesses is that. So we had to protect that. And part of protecting that was mm-hmm. if a, someone can't afford us right now, but still wants to use it, we have to have an outlet for them. We have to have a place to go. We, we don't want them to go to a competitor. We don't want to like go somewhere else. So we decided that we'd invest pretty heavily in free. And, you know, we are inspired by other great companies. That have, I mean, MailChimp, 
as a great example, launched their free product during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So it's also a, was a, we saw metaphors where during a more challenging economy, companies that added this as part of their flow ended up kind of accelerating out when the economy gets better and it really helped. So that, that was one of the examples we used. I mean, Datadog's another great example. If you look at Datadog as a company, they have a like, significant freemium user base, which which helps fuel their business. So I think that, that was an area where we just, we didn't have it at the time and we, we knew that it could help create more resiliency in our business long-term. Do you feel the stress on your customer success team and other aspects of your business, was the stress bigger or smaller versus your expectations of freemium? I think we had low expectations of our product-led team and freemium team at first because it was brand new. And our goal was to start building momentum and and seeing if we can drive more growth. Now, um, having said that, I think they were good goals, but not like super stretchy. And we started to achieve them. And I think that team was executed very, very well during that, that time period. So yeah, I mean, look, in general, I think we're pretty tough goal setters. So we, we strive for really high revenue growth. We strive for high retention, high net retention. So I think I think both those teams had, had pretty aggressive goals, but there, there wasn't a huge distinction, I'd say. Did you have like to double your customer success team because of the influx of free people? No. Or was it no. so simple of a version that it didn't really require? Look, it was as simple as a version. And we decided that we weren't going to, we were going to be more reactive on support rather than proactive. So like, you know, you have to have a scale motion and success if you want to do any sort of free model. You just can't afford to put humans on it. And honestly, every once in a while, you'll hear some complaint, like some free user, like, I can't believe Pendo's not supporting this. But it's like one out of like thousands of people using it every once in a while. Like I can count on my hand, one hand the number of times it's happened in the company's history. And once we get those, we honestly, we work maniacally to make sure that doesn't happen again. So I think, look, if someone needs help, they should be able to get in touch with someone dependent to get them help. And I think we've got good reactive systems for that, but we haven't really executed much of a proactive motion there because we haven't needed it. As we're wrapping up today's episode, uh, what would be one do and one don't for our listeners when it comes to product-led growth? The do is... And this is a mistake we made throughout the company's history that we've since fixed, but make a person and a team's responsibility to drive growth. Don't, so I don't want to say the don't, but like, I, I think a common problem people fall into is they, they try to make it a part of someone's job. So the do is make it someone's full-time job, hire someone that's done it before, hire like a head of growth. Like we have a VP of growth. So it's a senior level role reporting right to our chief product officer. She's a team of people. She's highly cross-functional. She knows what she's doing. Do hire someone to make it their full-time job. Every time in the past we tried to do this, we just like had this little offshoot project. Once we put a full-time human in charge of it with a team, like fully resourced, it took off. So that's the do. The don't is, and this is like, I think a really hard thing for a lot of companies doing this. Don't deliver an experience that's a bad product as you know one of our investors like to call it crippleware it's common for people to when they're doing free or freemium or free trials to put so many gates that people don't get enough value where they really get hooked on the experience and they just churn like you have to give away a great experience give away more than you think you need to give away that's actually the best like so so don't get 
you know, there's a great expression I like penny wise and pound foolish. So if you're getting penny wise and pound foolish, you're going to like nickel and dime or like hold back some little feature. Like do not do that. Give away actually a lot more than you expect. And your sales team will fight you on this and they will be pissed off that you're giving away so much. They're going to say, oh, no one's going to convert. I have nothing to upsell. Trust me, it'll be okay. If you give away more and you get people hooked, you got to give away a great experience. If it's a great experience, it'll work. If it's a bad experience, it won't. That's kind of, to me, the, the, the big do's and don'ts. That's inspiring. Thanks so much, Todd, for coming on and sharing your wisdom today. That was great. Where can people find you personally and your company online? Yeah, so feel free to find uh, Pendo at pendo.io or on social media on Twitter, we're pendo.io or on LinkedIn. You know, you're welcome to try out our free experience there. So it's great, clear call to action on our homepage. And then me, I am just T Olson, T O L S O N on Twitter. Probably not the best on social media, to be quite honest, but I am there. So you're welcome to, to reach out to me or on LinkedIn as well. So. Thanks so much, Todd. It's been great. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find a written recap for this episode at userless.com slash podcast. Please help us grow by leaving a review on iTunes. <laughs>